the Science Inside podcast. This is the Science Inside with Elna. Hello and welcome to the show. My name is Alna Schutz and it's nice to be here with you as every single Monday. And I'm Lebochang Madisha. So today we're speaking about a breakthrough uh, research study that has a global significance. If you did life sciences in high school, you may remember filling in genetics charts about hemophilia. Did you have to do this? Nope, I failed life science with all flying colors. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't even get myself into that game. I was like, yo, I don't think... I don't think I can do this. Yeah, no. And now, and now look, look you where now. I am. <laughs> but you might remember the disease or the, the disordered hemophilia from there. Hemophilia A and hemophilia B are inherited lifelong bleeding disorders that are relatively rare, but they do have very severe effects on the lives of patients. Yes, they do. And basically, this disorder means that your body can't make blood clots naturally, which it needs to do in order to stop bleeding. Right. That means that hemophilic bleed much easier than anyone else. And something like a bruise, that would just be a normal thing to you and I, would be life-threatening to them and it would threaten their organs. And it's so serious, especially in babies and toddlers, when you don't know that that is happening. Mm. Obviously, it can be extremely serious and and as you said, um, life-threatening. So today we'll be speaking mostly about the more common type, hemophilia A, which is when you are missing a particular clotting factor A, 8. 8, there we go. <laughs> there are some methods available to replace that factor 8. Thankfully, they are available, but they're not always ideal because factor 8 replacement needs to be done through veins which isn't always easily accessible in uh, hemophilic patients. Yeah, it makes sense, right? If, mm. if the problem is in the blood and, and you know, the veins then that's not really where you want to be poking a needle Exactly. In. Yeah, and, and the other problem is unfortunately some people have quite a bad immune response to that particular treatment which makes it useless so even though there are these treatments for hemophiliacs it's really great news that we now have an alternative, which which is exactly what we're talking about today. Exactly. That is amazing, making their, their lives better. And a recent study found that injecting a new protein called imiximab into, into the skin can function like the missing factor 8. It was very successful in its trials and can mean a significantly better life for hemophiliacs everywhere. So here's the really cool thing. I know you I know you already know level but I'm a little bit <laughs> proud because even though this has global significance it was a global study done all over the world in different places the lead author is right here at Wits. so in our main interview today we will speak to the scientist behind all of this professor Johnny Machlangu whoop whoop Wits represent yes and of course in science today we hear about something weird again and this time we're talking about a paper battery that is powered by bacteria, believe it or not. I, I don't know, Lebo. I It sounds too strange 
batteries are not made out of paper. That's not how they work. Firstly. <laughs> Bacteria. Like, what is going on here? You're going to have to convince me of this later because I'm not there. I will try. I will try to convince you. <laughs> so then later in the show, we continue by looking at more uh, around hemophilia, specifically genetics. In, and you want to listen here if maybe anything here sounds familiar or you just want to know more about your genetics. We're going to go through all those kind of things like when should you get genetic testing for this and how can this affect women even though it's a typically thought of as a typically male disease all of that is coming up on the show but as always we'll kick it off with some science news in a minute and don't forget you can catch us on our social media on facebook as vfm and you can also tweet us at vfm hashtag science inside the podcast. If you missed any of this or you're listening now and you're like, oh, my friend would love this, then you can find the podcast on iTunes as The Science Inside or vits.journalism.co.za forward slash science. Or you could join in on the conversation through our WhatsApp line at 084-078-4912. Let's get into the show with our science news. This week's Science Headline. Okay, what do you have for us? Okay, today on the news, Alna, primary and high school learners are invited to name South Africa's second nanosatellite, ZA Cube 2. Now, the ZA Cube 2 satellites are really, really small. They're about 10 centimeters in length and breadth. One cube weighs about one kilogram, a satellite that weighs one kilogram. Are you sure this isn't like a toy satellite? <laughs> no. Like Even toys are us. Around the corner. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's not from Toys R Us, no. And even though they're letting kids name this, it's a real satellite. Now, these tiny satellites have come a long way since Sputnik 1, which was the first artificial Earth satellite launched by Russia in 1957, which, we- which weighed 83 kilograms. Now, the success of the ZA CubeSat program is revolutionary- revolutionizing rather space technology. Okay, so... Obviously, it it ha- it's happening here. Um, you're saying ZA Cube. That makes me think that this is a local product. It definitely is. It was originally developed by, well, it was developed by the California uh, Polytechnic State University and Stanford University in USA in 1990 to aid universities worldwide to perform space science exploration. And with that, they became increasingly popular with institutions of learning and technological institutes because of their educational offerings and those offerings that they serve to students around the world. Now, ZA Cube 2 was designed and built mainly by postgraduate students at the Cape Peninsula University of Technology, together with the South African National Space Agency. As part of the CPUT Premier Nano Satellite Program, the ZA Cubed 1, also known as TEPISOSAT, is the first nano satellite to be developed in South Africa, and the current ZA Cubed 2, which is currently being developed, will be the most advanced and pushing South African learners to give it a name now. I think that's cool because ZA Cubed 2 really isn't the catchiest. Yeah, the catchiest name on earth. So that's that's pretty good. I've seen the ZA Cube One. Um, I've been I've been in, in you know in exhibitions where I've seen it. So um, I'm sure ZA Cube Two will will be good once it has a better name. But just in case somebody has a sister or a brother or a, a child, any of our listeners. Um, 
and they're thinking like, hmm, these these learners, or maybe you yourself are in high school, mm. what are they getting if they correctly name this highlight? It's always about what am I getting out of this <laughs> in this world. But anyway, the program has been funded by the Department of Science and Technology and the National Research Foundation and is aligned with the National Space Strategy for Human Resource Development. The learners that stand a chance of winning, a, a, well, the, st- the learners that actually name the satellite stand a chance of winning a laptop and a visit to the construction of the satellite in Cape Town. So that's pretty, that's pretty exciting, actually. Yeah, and I mean, a laptop is pretty cool. Yeah, no, I know <laughs> I need a, a laptop that functions <laughs> and so, connects to Wi-Fi. Unfortunately, so. <laughs> you can't take part in this. Yeah, I'm too grown. <laughs> but seeing as they had the first one to be sourced at, why did they need to build this ZA Cube 2? Now, Tepisosat was designed and built by postgraduates in uh, following following the CubeSat program, right, at the French French South African Institute of Technology in collaboration with SANSA. This nanosatellite was first launched in 2013. Its main mission was to gather data on space weather for SANSA, orbiting the Earth about 15 times a day. And Yo. yeah, that's a lot. <laughs> And it runs on the same amount of power as a five-watt light bulb, which is quite fascinating. That's incredible. I, <laughs> I run on far much. I run on much more power, and I only drive like fifty k's a day. Exactly. That's the thing good- is, orbiting the whole Earth <laughs> fifteen times. Fifteen times. Insane. Now the ZA Cube Two is a triple unit uh, cube satellite. It is slightly heavier than its predecessor, but for all the right reasons, of course. Now, this uh, carries an advanced camera, which will be able to detect uh, forest and fault fires and also serve as a front, a forefront rather, of two future satellite constellations, one for maritime domain awareness in support of Operation Pagisa and the other, a firesat cons- constellation, to track fire on the African continent. That makes so much sense. And you know what? So often when we hear satellites, we kind of think of space and, you know, uh, looking outward, so mm-hmm. to say. But of course, wh- what better what better technology to use to look at ourselves, to look at the earth and to understand things like fault fires, like things happening in the oceans, like that's very, that makes a lot of sense and it's great to know that this new technology will will help looking out, will help to look out not just for humans but the environment. Yeah, it's like we have our own well, we created it, our own um, a security system now, <laughs> <laughs> worldwide security. And yes, and not only that, but the kind of data that ZA Cube 2 will be able to collect in the case of maritime support, it can give detailed information about ships along our coast, which includes astonishing data such as ships' GPS coordinates, registration information, what? speed and direction of travel. Direction of travel hit me. I'm like, wait. So you can tell this this ship is going to go northeasterly or wherever. Yeah, that was mind-blowing. And this will be helpful in alerting and assisting authorities to track ship traffic in exclusive economic zones and improve the safety of ships. Now, to date, the satellite program was has coached rather and witnessed more than 60 master's students and has developed a suit of communications products that, were, that is 
being marketed internationally through Clyde Space. Hmm. The ZA Cube 2 will be launched later this year by science minister and the research and engineering team once the satellite has been named by the kids. <laughs> <laughs> I One of my questions about the story is who has access to this kind of data? Because I'm sure there's lots of people that would like to know exactly which ship is where. Actually. So it could be, I don't know, it could either be really big business or bad business. Yeah, it could go north, south, like it could go anyway because knowing where ships are at all times, also now pirates can also hack into the systems and yeah, just steal ships around the world. But it is a good idea. Yes. The idea itself is a good one. I won't lie. Yeah, if it's being used by the correct authorities, I mm. mean, that sounds like a good idea. But you don't, <laughs> yeah, you don't quite want anybody with that information. Uh, where was your story from? My story, Alna, was from the information of the story, rather, was from South African Advancement for Science and Technology Agency and the CPUT website. Okay, great stuff. Let's go from from pirates to something slightly more fun, at least for some people. (laughs) What do you think of when you hear about the drug LSD? The drug LSD, I think, okay, I really just imagine a really good time, but at the same time, it's (laughs) low-key dangerous. (laughs) Like, there's a possibility that it could be dangerous to you, but... It's fine, but it's dangerous. Don't do drugs. <laughs> I've got to say, I think a very like stereotypical, like your 60s, your hippies, your oh, music. Yeah. I really think of, uh, of that kind of era rather than people doing LSD now as an actual thing. I like can't doing thing. LSD now, dude. You're out of date. <laughs> <laughs> That's kind of what I think of, but... What neither you or I naturally probably think about is Silicon Valley. As in Silicon Valley, Beverly Hills, Silicon yes. Valley? Okay, why? Like the tech guys, like your Steve Jobs, yeah. your, like Google, you know, that kind of thing. That is apparently where um, this is really becoming very popular, but not as a party drug. Oh, I was about to like, I'm sorry, I don't want the people running the <laughs> internet high on LSD. <laughs> Well, you see, it's all about something called microdosing. I don't know if you've heard of this. Never. Basically, it means you take a drug, but a teeny, teeny, tiny amount of it. Okay. Right. So in this case, if we're talking LSD, it's between 6 and 20 micrograms. So tiny. And it's become increasingly popular. And users claim that while it doesn't make them high, it makes them perform better at work, which is obviously important in that kind of environment. So they say they feel more creative and focused with some people even saying it helped with their depression. I mean, this is sounding like the whole evolution of uh, weed as well, because weed has become that drug. Like they are proper outlets in California I think yeah in California where people can get weed because it is helpful in many other ways other than just getting you high so this is quite interesting to me that um, it would have been used by by people who who really aren't necessarily looking as you say for the high at all but exactly. think that it's, it's doing other things um, but yeah I mean we are still talking about an illegal and possibly dangerous drug. <laughs> so now, how does this, like, is this a legit thing? 
That's a good question because even though there are lots of anecdotes, if you Google this, you will find many things. Okay. I did today. <laughs> my, my Google algorithms are going to be like, Elna, what are you? Oh, what if are you someone doing? searches on your Google search, <laughs> I'm like, hey, dude, are you okay? <laughs> um, but at this point, of course, it's all just anecdotes. It's stories that people say, you know, tell around, uh, around the internet dinner table. So how can we really know? Well, that's exactly why some scientists are trying to find out what is happening here. And of course, LSD has been studied quite extensively, but never through microdosing. And the Beckley Foundation, as well as Imperial College London, just launched last week. They actually launched the first placebo-controlled trial into this habit and what it does to the body and the mind. So just to say, in general, microdosing does happen with other substances, including weed and quite popularly magic mushrooms. But that's quite difficult to disguise in a capsule. So if you're trying to give it to trial participants, it would be too obvious. That's why Mm. this particular study looks at LSD. So, okay, so LSG, Sharp, how exactly are we going to do this? Like, like what's going to happen? Because I'm pretty sure you can't go out and buy illegal drugs for research. Like, like okay, so I, I just need maybe a couple of grams of this illegal substance. But don't worry, don't worry, don't worry. It's all for the greater good. It's for science. It's for science, you guys. <laughs> yeah, no, I don't think you can do that. I don't think anybody would believe you, first of all. I think you just need to go buy LSD, like, casually. <laughs> no. So, uh, obviously, that's a problem. Uh, not to mention the costs of such a study. Mm. So, a normal trial wouldn't be possible, and that's why it hasn't been done. But I do wonder whether, so even though they're not doing it in a traditional way, I do wonder if the study will actually be accepted worldwide as like a a standard study because they are doing it in quite a unique and unusual method, which is why I even mentioned this. The story is not to make you go try to do drugs, guys. That's not the point here. The point is really how interesting it is Um, how they've decided to do this research. So the way they're planning to get around those problematics, like it being illegal, is what they call a self-blinded study. So they are saying to people who already microdose, such as in in Silicon Valley, come, take part in the study (laughs) and bring us whatever you normally take. (laughs) Wow, guys, this sounds so weird already. Like, Okay, guys, we know you're into drugs. Okay, so come over. We want to see how these drugs affect you now. Okay, it's cool. It's cool. We're not judging you. Just come over. We want to see what the drugs are doing to you. Yeah, so so the scientists don't have to pay for it. They don't have yeah, to... actually... They don't have to, you know, ask where they got it from. (laughs) So basically what happens is that the researchers will then insert the LSD for each particular person that that person has prepared at home Mm. into a capsule and then give them a capsule, which is either their drug or a placebo. Okay. And then they have to do lots of tests and questionnaires and cognitive games and whatnot. And... Obviously, the people hope or think they're taking the drug and the researchers will then check all of what actually correlates. So, so are the test scores different when people were on yeah. the real drug or not? I love not? how you say I ho- they hope that they take taking the drug. <laughs> I mean, I don't know. So, uh, so that's how they're planning to do it. This is actually quite cool, though. Like, in terms of the effects of LSD, 
But also just as a study method, it's actually very new to us like the way we like scientists do things it's very interesting mm. the and, approach and it just makes me think of all the substances and the things that sure are illegal for a specific reason mm. but to a certain degree that that limits scientific study of what that thing does to our bodies or our environment or whatever it might be so is this self-blinded study when people are doing this anyway out in the world is this kind of study a way for scientists to gain more uh, legitimate knowledge freely I think about all is, kinds actually. of things. It so. is, I feel, because now not we're not looking at it at the, as this bad drug. It's like, okay, it's a bad drug, but it has its certain benefits. So if you're smart, don't overdo it. But also, on the other hand, let's not just let you believe there are benefits. Exactly. Let's actually let's see if they're there. Yeah. Because maybe people are hurting themselves medically and cognitively. Mm. And I'd rather there be a study than just letting people do what they think is right. That's true. Or medically correct. So that was some updates from the science world, from pirates to LSD. But after the break, we get into something slightly more serious with an update on a world important breakthrough in hemophilia. You're listening to The Science Inside, bringing you science around major news events. Welcome to the show. My name is Alna Schutz. And I'm Lebechang Madisha. Remember, guys, you can find us on Facebook and Twitter as VowFM, hashtag Science Inside. So there's been a big breakthrough piece of research recently. That's what we're talking about on the show today. It has to do with the genetic blood disorder hemophilia. Luckily for us, the lead author of this global study is right here at WITS and is on the line with us so that we can all learn about this firsthand. Now, we're on, we have Professor Johnny Masangu as our guest today speaking with us and he is a professor of hematology sorry and head of school of pathology here at Fitz University he's also the director of the World Federation of Hemophilia International Hemophilia Training Center in Johannesburg as well as the director of the bleeding disorders unit and clinical hematology service at Charlotte Matlake Johannesburg Academic Hospital so it's clearly a big name in this field Prof Thank you so much for joining us. It's a pleasure. Thank you very much, uh, Edna, for inviting me um, this evening. It's so great to speak about this order, this disorder, which is quite rare, but yet very important for people to know about. So just to make sure we're all on the same page, can we start um, just by you telling us what exactly is hemophilia? Well, uh, hemophilia is an inherited bleeding disorder, which is um, um, a condition uh, affecting uh, only males and female carriers. And the reason for that is because uh, the genetic mutation in hemophilia is carried out in uh, the X chromosome, and as you know, males have got one X chromosome and females have got two X chromosomes. And as a result of the females having two X chromosomes, they are actually protected. So they don't suffer from hemophilia, but they are what we call obligate carriers. Whereas males who have X and Y, the X chromosome, uh, if it does carry the hemophilia gene, it means they will then suffer from the bleeding disorder. 
Right. And um, before we get into your research study, how has hemophilia been treated up till now? Um, and how, how did this make your, your research study and your new method necessary? Yeah, so, so um, the uh, approach to treating patients with hemophilia, it's a fairly simple approach, is uh, you identify the missing protein, in other words, uh, the clotting factor that the patient does not produce, and you replace it. And the way you replace it is uh, through giving it uh, via the uh, intravenous route. In other words, uh, you have to put a needle into the vein and then uh, you inject the protein and then the protein then participate in the normal hemostatic process. In other words, um, a process leading to clot formation. That is how we have approached hemophilia treatment. And in fact, uh, we've been very successful in doing that for many decades and there are a number of products that one can use uh, to replace the missing protein. The unmet needs in that approach are twofold. One is you actually have to find a vein. Um, so you can imagine um, you know, uh, asking patients to inject themselves uh, into the vein the uh, missing protein that they require to stop the bleeding. Uh, so, so that is the one unmet need. The second unmet need was the fact that, in fact, in an ideal world, you do not want to be reactive in uh, treating bleeds. You also want to be proactive in preventing bleeds. So uh, the majority of the patients will then need to be able to inject themselves frequently even if they are not bleeding, in a process called prophylaxis. Now, the consequence of adapting prophylaxis as a preventative measure is that um, the patients have to be prepared to inject themselves quite frequently. Uh, we're talking here about two to three times a week uh, into the vein in order to prevent bleeding to happen spontaneously. Mm. So those are the two unmet needs, the fact that it needs an intravenous injection, and the fact that, in fact, the treatment itself is a burden to patients. So when what we did in this study was, is there any other way of addressing those two unmet needs? That was the context in which we undertook the uh, emisuzumab study. The uh, emisuzumab is a protein uh, that can perform the same function as the missing protein in hemophilia. Uh, the patients with hemophilia A are missing factor eight. So what emisuzumab does, it replaces the missing factor eight. Mm -hmm. And we basically wanted to find out if we can address those two unmet needs using emisuzumab. Right, so in your study, you didn't use the injection um, the injection method, which, as you're saying, is quite problematic, especially in patients where veins and blood is exactly the problem. So tell us more about the the skin approach you took instead. So, so the, 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 the innovation here is um, essentially instead of the, the, the route of administration being intravenous, in other words, into the vein, and you are correct, it is problematic in someone who's already a bleeder 
to go and puncture the wall of their blood vessel in order to give them the missing protein. So the approach was uh, to give this drug into the skin and it can be any part of the body where the skin is accessible and in fact um, this drug is available if it is injected under the skin uh, and that is the the route that the drug is given that was the first sort of um, important uh, innovation the second part is that the drug once it is injected under the skin it lasts longer in other words it has a very long half-life of up to 30 days um, so essentially instead of someone injecting themselves every two to um, uh, no, uh, two to three times a week they could inject themselves once a week or even uh, every second week or once a month in fact when we undertook this study we were particularly interested in answering the question uh, number one how much impact will this drug have if it is injected under the skin uh, every week or every second week? And in fact, that is the, that is the, that is the, the those were the objectives of the study. And then another aspect here is that some hemophiliacs, some people with this disorder actually had a bad immune response to the traditional treatment, which made it very difficult for, for them to continue taking it, as I understand it. Does your, your new breakthrough address this? Yes, it does. In fact, in a study that we published last year, and it also happens to be in the NEJM, um, we showed that the drug is able to treat, at least to prevent bleeds in patients who have an immune response to the replacement therapy. And, and, and we demonstrated that in fact it works in that environment. The current treatment uh, approach was specifically to look at patients who do not have antibodies against factor eight. And, and for a simple reason that those are the patients who are in the majority um, the um, development of antibodies in, in hemophilia does not happen in every patient. We do know the risk factors associated with the development of antibodies, and it occurs only up to about a third of the patients receiving replacement therapy. In other words, two-thirds of the patients do not develop the antibody. But this drug, emisuzumab or Mlibra, is able to treat bleeds in patients with or without um, the, the antibodies against uh, the factor. Now, Professor Masangu, I have a question about the long-term effect of uh, this drug now. Does it have any positive long-term effects on the patient? Say you start using it as a child, and then does it make you less... Uh, does, ma does it make your blood a little bit more capable of uh, clotting? in the long term or is it just a constant procedure that you have to do all your life and just it, it's a constant thing very good question um there are a number of approaches in the management in the modern management of hemophilia patients and um, we talk of um the current approaches as managing the patient as opposed to curing the patient and in fact not very soon from now um, and sorry, not very far from now, we would be talking about cure as um, no, it's, 
is rapidly evolving. Uh, in our own center at Charlotte McGregor, we are already doing gene therapy. Um, so, so to answer your question, yes, the patients that are taking replacement therapy, it is a lifelong replacement. What we wanted to answer in this particular study is can we reduce the burden of treatment that is associated with that lifelong um, replacement therapy? Uh, the patients taking the replacement therapy are in no way cured or uh, they are not in any way uh, protected for a longer period than the half-life of the product. Mm. Professor, of course this sounds excellent and it sounds to me like it could have a very long-lasting change on the treatment of hemophilia around the world not just here in south africa is that true that this that this new method and medicine that you've found may turn the tide yes in fact um no um the very fact that it was published in a, a very high impact journal which only accept those research uh, questions that are likely to change uh, the lives of patients is, is clearly an indication of that. But I would like to believe that, in fact, this particular therapy is going to change the paradigm um, and the eye with which we look at hemophilia uh, in the future. Um, in, uh, just to give you an example of that, um, if patients were receiving standard half-life replacement therapy factor 8, they would have to inject three times a week. Um, in a year, the, we are talking about 156 injections into the vein. In the context of this medicine, now if it is ultimately given once a month, you're talking about 12 injections as opposed to 156 injections. Mm. Now that, that is the impact we're talking about and that is likely to change the quality of life of patients with hemophilia. Just giving us, just giving us a little bit of a realistic understanding of what the quality of life is right now. Can you, just a last question from me: what What accessibility is there to um, to existing treatments right now in South Africa, especially in for people who are maybe not in urban centres? What what kind of options do they have at the moment around hemophilia, and will this medicine be accessible um, far and wide? If you don't mind, I'll answer your last question. The intention is to make this medicine available to all patients with hemophilia, irrespective of where they live, and and that is one of the motivations for some of us to embark on these uh, clinical trials and produce evidence that they do work. Um, in the context of South Africa, uh, we do have obviously um, the discrepancies in the care of the patients that have hemophilia. In general, um, the uh, products for hemophilia uh, for patients who live in South Africa, as long as they are registered with one of the treatment centers, is free and is, pro is, is, is made available by government. Uh, having said that, um, we have not identified 
all the patients that have hemophilia in South Africa. The expected number of patients, for example, in 2018, uh, with a population of 57.7 million people in South Africa, we expect 5,700 people with hemophilia, and we've only identified 2,200. Clearly, uh, there is a large number of patients that are currently not yet identified, and consequently, that are not receiving the appropriate therapy. Mm, and, and that makes newer, more accessible, easier, not as frequent treatments even more important. Professor Johnny Machlangu has been speaking to us about this breakthrough therapy or medicine in the field of hemophilia. Thank you so much for speaking to us. You are still on the science inside and in a minute we will continue with more science around this. But after the break, just a quick, just a quick jump, uh, jump aside level to unscience. The Science Inside. So today on the show, we've been speaking about the experiences of patients in hospitals and how the care they get influences their health. Sometimes it might be the case that patients, they go to the hospital and they think something that's wrong with them can be cured. And the reality is many of the diseases we see nowadays, like chronic diseases, like hypertension and obesity and diabetes, those things cannot be fixed by a sister or a doctor. It is actually the patient that must change their lifestyle. Dr. Elise Archer. She is a clinical nurse by training and has previously worked at government and public hospitals. Every Monday from 6 to 7 p.m. Only on VowFam. This is The Science Inside with Elna. If you're a regular to the show, you know exactly what's coming next. Lebo, I'm excited just thinking about it. It's unscience, which is just a shot left in the middle of the show, five minutes or so, where we look at something a little bit ridiculous, a little bit weird, <laughs> a piece of real research yeah. that at first glance makes you go, sorry, what? Yes, we always keep keeping it unusual here on Unscience. And today's Unscience was produced by myself and comes from the State University of New York via Science Daily and IEE Spectrum. The sound is from Ben Sound, Partners in Rhyme and Soundjoy. Okay, let's get into it. Unusual, unlikely, unscience. Okay, Elna... I want you to imagine a battery made out of paper powering, powering you, all your devices. <laughs> imagine. Level a paper, a paper battery. <laughs> yes. Powered by bacteria. Yes. I have my, I have my Duracell bunny there. I'm fine. Why is this necessary? Why of all things if we're going to find a replacement? Would we think of that? It seems very far-fetched. Is this real? Are you just making stuff up now? <laughs> no, I am not making stuff up, Alna. It is unusual, but it is definitely real. Now, Sean Choi, an associate professor in the Department of Electrical and Computer Engineering at the University of New York in Birmingham, wanted to develop a cheap and more portable power source. Okay, but aren't batteries already pretty relatively cheap and, and portable? I mean, they're, they're not that big. They fit into your hand. Was <laughs> there a bigger need to create this paper battery? There was exactly. Like, there was a really big need around remote 
areas where health facilities have a really difficult time providing adequate services to the communities they cater for. Now, in this part, this is also part due to the lack of some sort of power source to run the equipment at these health facilities. Electrical sockets and batteries that we think are an everyday norm are actually a luxury, mostly because they're expensive and quite difficult to access. Now, as a result, healthcare workers have a very tough time trying to actually do their job in these kind of facilities. Mm-hmm. Choi then realized the need for this inexpensive and portable power source and that's how the paper battery came about. Okay, I was joking, but that is a really good need, actually. Yeah. If it's rural areas, healthcare facilities, that can change a life or save a life exactly. if you have a battery as opposed to you know, not having a power source at all. But I'm still, so I'm sorry for making fun of you, but still, (laughs) the paper part is very strange to me because paper isn't something you think of traditionally as being very conducive to, you know, as as a conductor. And it just seems like a strange choice. What is if the the paper gets wet? I have so many questions. How does this work? Firstly, paper's wood. So as a conductor, it's on zero. It's an insulator. (laughs) So it's a very mind-boggling idea at first. But how this paper battery was made to actually conduct electricity is that thin metal layers and other materials were printed on the paper. In particular, a special kind of bacteria called exoelectrogen was placed on the paper and this bacteria allows electrons to be transferred outside of its cells. (laughs) Okay, without having to use our imagination. (laughs) How does the battery work though? I get get it now, Mm. but how does this work? Okay, so bringing this to reality, this battery is a bacteria-based battery and it uses respiration to convert biochemical energy stored in organic matter into biological energy. To make this battery, dried freeze exoelectrogens, excuse me, were placed on the paper, as I mentioned before. Now this bacteria then transfers electrons outside of its cell. Then to power the battery, electrons pass through the cell membrane and make contact with external electrodes. Okay, so that makes sense, but how do you switch it on or use it exactly? That's actually a good question because, okay, so these electrons are traveling outside the cell, going outside, but how do you switch this thing on because it's just a piece of paper? Now, researchers added water and saliva to revive bacteria in order to activate the battery or turn it on. Now, Choi and his colleagues are working on a more durable paper-based battery because the current bio battery that they have excuse the pun decomposes in water so as a result it can only be used once and once only so you use it once get it wet throw it away okay i'm not sure if that sounds like the most sustainable use but at least that makes it incredibly portable but what does this all mean for the power it's able to produce for now it just means that the power that it's able to produce is quite small given the size and the fact that it actually just deteriorates after one use. Now, the microbial battery produces a maximum of power of 4 microwatts per centimeter squared and a current density of 26 microamperes per centimeter squared. It's no wonder its for life 
a four-month life on the shelves hasn't really reached our regular shopping outlets like our pick and pigs and shop rides. You know, it hasn't been a big thing. But it is a big deal in that it is a step forward in science. Now, this lower power also means that the uses of this particular battery are quite limited. And in order to make it a viable commercial product, the current density would have to be improved by a factor of a thousand. Oh, wow. So we're really only at the start. We're yeah. at the beginning of this weird and wonderful creation. But then, after that, we'll be charged up with some paper, y'all. I don't know, level. It's a, it's a great it's a great invention, sure. But one of my big questions is the cost. Is actually really cheap. Yeah, it's very very cheap because he uh, Choi had a prior battery that he created, and it was around a dollar hmm. for for a battery. So that is how cheap it is. He's trying to keep it very very low cost. Okay. So that's that's the main aim, portable and low cost. Considering who he's trying to create this for, rural areas, rural uh, health facilities. Hmm. Okay. It sounds strange, but could be a pretty cool a pretty cool method to be used. I mean, I'm just thinking, powering up your battery, just then batteries on, <laughs> powering everything out here. It's like it's really interesting. See. Even your spit can be scientific. Exactly. <laughs> that was unusual, unlikely, and science. After the break, we get back into the topic of the blood disorder hemophilia. Specifically, we're going to be looking at the genetic side of things. How do you know if you have this gene? What do you do if you do actually have it? We'll find out after the break. Unusual, unlikely, unscience. You're listening to The Science Inside, bringing you science around major news events. Welcome back to the show. And uh, we've been talking about the recent breakthrough in the treatment of genetic blood disorder, hemophilia. It can be life-threatening and painful, of course. So we're really happy about this advancement that has come up. So hemophilia, as you heard earlier in the show, is determined by your genetics and can therefore be anticipated to a certain degree. So that's something that we'll be unpacking now to try to understand. And as I said earlier in the show, if you ever did life science in high school, yeah. you probably filled in that little chart with if the hemophilia gene is here, where does it go? We're going to be making that a little bit more practical now. Yes, we are. And let us welcome to the discussion Dr. Yegelin Naidu, who is a clinical hematologist at Ray's Hospital in KwaZulu-Natal. Thank you for joining us, Dr. Naidu. Good evening, Anna, Ebo, Prof. and your listeners. Thank you for inviting me to be part of your show tonight. Now, this is quite a big deal, especially for people living with hemophilia. Like Now, with this new drug that's come up, the thingy, the people have greater hope in terms of their treatment with hemophilia, as we spoke earlier in the show. Now, I have a couple of questions. When it comes to hemophilia, it's quite complicated in terms of genetics, of course. But could you please give us an overview of how it actually works? Like, who is likely to carry it and get this disorder? 
As you heard from Prof. Mishango, hemophilia is an inherited condition that prevents the body from making clotting factors, specifically eight and nine, which then prevents clots from occurring and bleeds from stopping. Now, in, in, in inherited conditions like hemophilia, the disorder of carrier status can be passed from parent to child. So when we look at hemophilia A and B, uh, they are called X-linked recessive conditions, meaning that the gene that causes hemophilia is on the X chromosome. Uh, everyone knows that males have an X chromosome and a Y chromosome, and the females have two X chromosomes, so XX. Therefore, hemophilias usually affect males, and the reason being, when the male inherits the gene that causes hemophilia on his X chromosome, he does not produce the clotting factor he needs because the Y chromosome does not provide the information for the production of factor eight or factor nine. When a female inherits the gene that causes hemophilia on one of her X chromosomes, she has the second X chromosome and therefore that normal gene produces clotting factor and compensates for the hemophilia gene. So the female is said to be a carrier. So Technically speaking, men will have hemophilia, pass on the hemophilia 100% to their daughters. Therefore, all of their daughters are carriers and none of their sons receive the X chromosome and therefore will not have hemophilia. Women, on the other hand, who are carriers have a 50% chance to pass the hemophilia gene to their children, meaning that each son of a carrier has a 50% chance to have hemophilia and each daughter has a 50% chance to be a carrier. Now, if a woman who is a carrier is pregnant and we don't know the gender of the fetus, we can say she has a 25% chance to have a son with hemophilia, a 25% chance to have a daughter who is a carrier, and a 50% chance to have a son or a daughter who does not have hemophilia and is not a carrier. Now, if we look at her first child is a male who does not have hemophilia, there's still a 50% chance that the next male may have hemophilia. So the chance to pass on hemophilia gene is the same with each pregnancy, whether the previous children have hemophilia or are carriers. Wow, that is quite interesting. And it opens up your mind to this very real situation about how genetically driven this hemophilic thing, uh, thing disorder is. So, thankfully, there are genetic tests that can be run to check whether a person has hemophilia or not. What types of tests actually exist for hemophilia and when should they be taken? That's a good question. Okay, there are two types of genetic testing approach we can highlight. So, the first one would be the genetic testing of an affected male or a male with hemophilia. And we can use things like direct DNA testing. Uh, or sequence analysis. Now, what these tests would do would confirm the diagnosis of hemophilia that's post-delivery or when the diagnosis is made on the patient. It also gives knowledge of the mutation and can predict severity of the disease, especially in symptomatic carriers with no family history of hemophilia. The, the other part of it is that it also gives knowledge of the mutation when uh, estimating the risk of developing inhibitors. And uh, because some large deletions or inversion mutations that are found on the hemophilia gene confer a higher risk for inhibitor development. 
And it can also determine the genotype or the mutation in the patients with hemophilia is critical, especially later on when we are trying to test at-risk female family members, so it becomes cost-effective. And from a female point of view, uh, the, the carrier would be would benefit from the knowledge of the mutations and the phenotype status. And this is usually done when we make the diagnosis uh, that the patient is a carrier. So you spoke about women generally being carriers. And lastly, I would like to know, seeing that we consider hemophilia exclusively as a male disease, is it possible for women to actually have hemophilia, not as carriers, but to have it affect their health directly? And yes. when does this happen? Okay. There are three possible uh, ways that a woman can prevent with a bleeding associated with hemophilia. So the first would be uh, the carrier hemophilia that has low factor levels and can present like a mild hemophilia. And they usually tend to bleed during a hemostatic challenge. So if you go to the dentist or you have surgery. The second is if a male with, a, with known with hemophilia has a child with a, a known hemophilia carrier. Now the daughter may inherit both the X, defective X chromosome from both parents and then present like a hemophilia. And the last uh, way is that um, it's called a quiet hemophilia. Now, this can be associated with malignancies and autoimmune diseases or even pregnancy itself. So the patient's body will produce antibodies that neutralize both factor eight or factor nine, and the patient will present with bleeding similar to a patient with hemophilia. Wow. Thank you so much, Dr. Yagelin Naidu. And we really appreciate you on the show, letting us know and letting us, letting our viewers know what is happening with hemophilia and how it affects them, male or female. Thank you so much again for joining us on the show. You're welcome. Unfortunately, unfortunately, we did have to cut that short. We are running out of time. But one big takeaway that we're there is that it actually isn't just men. And I feel like that's something that you always hear. Exactly, because when they say it's a, a women are carriers, you're just like, oh, okay, then I'm just, I'm not going to be very concerned about this until maybe you want to have a child when it comes to family planning. But now to hear that women can actually be affected, it's it broadens your mind. Like you learn a little bit more about yourself, really. Mm, and it's not just hemophilia. I know it's a very relatively rare disease that we spoke about today, but it also highlights how important it is to think about your genes and and what you're carrying in general, just genetic testing in general. And genes are something that we usually just take so lightly because it's part of our everyday life, I guess you could say. Mm, but as well, as science is learning more about it, we can equip ourselves with more knowledge that might actually affect our future, which is pretty cool. Yeah. You are still on the science inside. Stay curious. Stay informed. Stay on the science inside. Lebo, what's your takeaway today from the show? My takeaway today, firstly, I learned about hemophilia because I wasn't very well informed around the whole disorder of hemophilia so that's one thing that i can take away and how it can affect me as a person and how important my genes are as a female mm. and i need to like get myself tested my genes tested and <laughs> see what's happening with me one big 
surprise for me, quite a sad one in, in the interview with with Professor Machlangu was that he said statistically they are expecting almost double the amount of patients mm. that they have on record for hemophilia. That means there are approximately two to three thousand people in South Africa suffering of this disorder, not knowing that that's what's going on and that there are accessible treatments. That was something that really got to me. So yeah. if you heard something today that just sounds like, hmm, you know that one friend or somebody's baby, maybe maybe today we could help you. Mm. But it's it's been a good show and the big thank you to all of our guests, including, of course, uh, the the lead author on this breakthrough study himself, Professor Johnny Machlangu and Dr. Yagelin Naidu. Today, our team behind the scenes is production by Bridget Lepere, Gloria Mabuza and Harmony Molefe and tech as usual by Gudrano Serrami. The podcast, if you missed it, is on vits.journalism.co slash science and on iTunes. And don't forget, guys, you can always catch us on our social media on Facebook and Twitter at VOWFM. The Science Inside is produced by the Wits Radio Academy, funded in part by the South African Department of Science and Technology. My name is Alna Schutz. And I'm Lebegang Madisha. We'll be with you again next week. The Science Inside, Monday from 6 to 7 p.m. on VOFM 88.1. The Science Inside Podcast.